A brief word from one of our sponsors. You spend a third of your life in sheets, so it's probably about time for a bedding upgrade. I ordered a new Brooklinen bed set, duvet cover, sheets and pillowcases because I wanted that feeling of five-star hotel bedding but without the huge cost. And Brooklinen sheets have been receiving rave reviews from Business Insider, Apartment Therapy, Men's Health and already have more than 30,000 five-star reviews online, more than any other online bedding company. My Brooklinen sheets are so comfortable. I'm a warm sleeper and they're always cool. They look great too. You can mix and match over 20 colours and patterns and Brooklinen make luxury sheets without the luxury markup. My Brooklinen sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on. Now it's time for your upgrade. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code DMT at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use that promo code DMT at brooklinen.com. In the last episode, I looked into claims that Resendez could have been involved in the murders for which Luis Perez, a man currently on death row in Texas, was convicted. Given that Luis's attorney took this seriously and tried to delay Resendez's execution, I felt I needed to look into this. But as you heard, the evidence doesn't really add up. But it did suggest that Angel Resendez wasn't a serial confessor. Why else would he deny these killings in Austin, Texas? And I think this is a really important point. After she met Resendez, Houston Chronicle journalist Lisa Olson came to the conclusion that there was far more compelling evidence linking him to the murder of Daryl Colahaco. And it's this murder that we're focusing on today. So she's in prison for murder? For murdering her husband when I did it. And who have you told about that? He destroyed some of my house, so I'm like, okay, how would he know? You'll remember from episode two that I went to the Gatesville prison to meet Diamantina, Colahaco's wife, along with her then lover, Andres Mascoro. She was convicted of Daryl's killing. Resendez had written to her, taking responsibility for Daryl's murder and backed up the claim with specific details about the family home where the killing took place. He said that uh, when he looked uh, towards up the stairs, there was a big old uh, canvas painting, which there was. The carpet was pink, and yes, it was. I'd wanted to speak to Andres for years. I'd written to him in prison, but he'd never written back. And then, out of the blue, he wrote to me. It was just one sentence in Spanish that essentially said, come and see me. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford.
So if you'll remember from episode two, the prosecution claimed that Diamantina had asked Andres to go around the house and kill Daryl for the life insurance money, and that Andres had gone round the house that evening and got into a fight with Daryl, bludgeoned him to death in the living room, and he'd been picked up a, a day or two later by police. So like Diamantina, Andres signed a confession. By the time the trial rolled around, both him and Diamantina were saying that these confessions were false, that they'd been obtained falsely, and that neither of them were guilty. And Andres and Diamantina have both now been in prison for 20 years. Why did he sign a confession if he was innocent? Does he still maintain his innocence 20 years on? And what is he doing to try and secure his freedom, if anything? Andres is housed at the McConnell unit, which is a state prison that looks actually not unlike death row, the Polanski unit, because in Texas they have these sort of flat pack prisons that they kind of just erect anywhere and they look identical. One morning early, I drove down there with a producer and an interpreter to speak to Andres, finally. Where Mexico are you from? Mexico City. Mexico City. Yeah. So the interpreter's name is Alvaro, and you're going to hear him because he's basically translating what Andres is telling me. I could hear the um, jangling of the handcuffs for quite a long time before he was brought through. He was brought down a long corridor and then into the sort of interview cell. And I spoke to him like a lot of these interviews in maximum security prisons behind bulletproof glass and via a telephone. Thanks for talking to me. Thank um, you. Alvaro is a Spanish speaker. All right. So he can interpret. Yeah, because I'm not going to speak it to all, I'm not going to understand to so. I've written to you a few times over the years, and I've only just got a response recently. You didn't respond to the other letters. Is that because I wrote to you in English? Yeah, he's saying that he understood you now because you wrote in Spanish. <laughs> okay, I apologize that it's taking so long. <laughs> Well, that clears that one up then. I wanted to know what sort of person Andres was before his arrest. He's from San Luis Potosí, Mexico. Uh, he came here and he met Diamantina at a dance club and they started going out. How did you come to the States? Did you come here legally? Tell me about your time in America and what you were doing before you met Diamantina. So I came here illegally. You know how it goes that when you cross illegally, there's people that you know, like friends and relatives, that help you out. Mm -hmm. So I was working gardening, and then I was working carpentry. Mm. In Houston area? In Houston. He says he hadn't been in the States very long, that the flat was in Diamantina's name, and that she was very much his world. The prosecution claimed that you and Daryl had this argument and fight, but she was saying that, on the contrary, you actually used to go around to the house. She had an open marriage, and so there was no animosity really between you and Daryl. What was your version of how the relationship worked? Oh, no, I don't... I never fought with Daryl at all. I even used to mow his lawn, and we got along fine. Hmm. She was still married to him, but you two were dating, and that was fine with Daryl, or was he not fine with that? 
When I met her, uh, she told me that she was still married, but that she wasn't living with him anymore, and that didn't seem to be a problem. He wasn't mad at you? No. What was he like? He was a nice guy, he was amicable, and he used to be in the computer a lot. Well, that chimes with what Diamantina told me, that all members of the love triangle essentially tolerated each other. Do you think Diamantina had anything to do with the death of Daryl Kolhaka? I don't think so, because they didn't fight or anything. Do you still talk to her, correspond? We corresponded for about five years, but then nothing. Mm. For the five years you corresponded, what did you talk about in the letters? That we missed each other and we loved each other because I felt really in love with her. And she loved me very much too. Andres says that his family stopped visiting him five years ago, even though they still think he's innocent. He says his younger sister gave him trouble for being with Diamantina in the first place, that she didn't trust her. My family were skeptical about her love to me. They thought that she had set me up by sending police to his house. By this, he's referring to the fact that police arrived to arrest Andres shortly after Daryl's murder. Andres said at the time of the murder he was with Diamantina's children, and I wanted to know more about this. How old were Diamantina's children at the time? 10 and around 16 or 17. Old enough to offer you an alibi? Yes, when he was tried, the youngest one even went up and testified uh, for him. The child's testimony was not believed, and Andres was sent down anyway. Diamantina signed a confession that said that she removed the children that night of Daryl's murder so that the murder could take place. She said that she signed a false confession as well. Why do you think she signed that? The children were with me. I don't know what happened. So let's get into Andres' confession. It's important to note that at the time, he had three brothers living in the States with their families illegally. Diamantina signed a confession. Police showed you the confession and you confessed, but at your trial, you said the confession was false. So what happened? So when I was arrested, I was taken to the county court and they told me that Diamantina had confessed that he had killed him for the money. He got very scared for his family because they told him that his whole family was going to get beaten and deported and he didn't want anything bad to happen to his family, so he got very scared. Andres's claim that detectives threatened to deport his family if he didn't sign that piece of paper, this is absolutely incredible. And if it's true, this is really shocking. He never had a, an attorney present at any moment. When you were being interviewed by the police, did you ask for an attorney or did you not realize that you could ask for an attorney? Yes, but they didn't let me do anything. They didn't even let me make one phone call, nothing. So you're saying you asked for an attorney and you didn't get one? They told him, sign here and you'll get out. And then because he had never been in prison before, either here in Mexico, I didn't know. I could have gone and fled to Mexico and, and left everything, but I had no idea what was I being taken into custody for. Did you know the consequences of signing that confession? I really never knew how much one signature would be worth in the state of Texas. I had no idea. The, the confession that he did was in Spanish, but it was being written by somebody else that, did, that wasn't really fluent in Spanish. And the only thing that they told me was sign here and here, but he didn't know what, what he was signing. 
He signed the form, but he said the Spanish was bad and that the meaning was blurred. And if that's true, it seems to me that the lack of an adequate translation would be pretty egregious. In the court documents, I think it says the confession said that you did not intend to kill him when you went to the house, but that you were drinking and became angry and that you struck him to quiet him. Yes, but I only said that because I didn't want them to bother my family. Diamantina and her boyfriend got put in, put in life in prison because of what I did. And I had told the police, I had told the FBI, but it seems like they don't really care about it since they got one already. Yeah. They say they don't need to give him more work or something like that. Tell me when you first heard about Angel Resendez writing to Diamantina and saying that he killed Daryl Colajaca. Through a newspaper that somebody had lent me here. Mark Babinek, who was the Associated Press writer, worked for an agency, basically. So he writes his story, and then it probably got picked up by numerous newspapers throughout the state. I want to know what went through your head and what you said when you read that he had confessed. I felt good because I saw a chance of fighting my sentence, but I wasn't able to do it. He said that he and his family didn't have the money to follow up on these claims. Do you think Resendiz killed Daryl Colajaca? I have no idea. I told him about Resendiz knowing specifics about the Colajaco house and yard. And I also explained about Mark Babinek and his interview with Resendiz in which Mark found the house to be exactly as Resendiz had described. Did you hear that he knew specifics? Is this the first time you're hearing it or did you already know this? It's the first time I'm hearing this. So do you think, based on that, that Resendiz could have committed the murder? I only know that he committed many murders, or maybe he did. It's really hard for me to sit here and understand how somebody, if they're innocent and they've been sentenced to life in prison, and then this other guy comes along and says he did it, he committed the crime, that you're in a position where you don't have enough money. You're an indigent inmate in a Texas prison and you don't have the funds to pay for a lawyer to say, I need to prove that I'm innocent and I need to get the hell out of this prison cell. Andres did try to appeal his conviction, but it wasn't anything to do with Resendez's claims. Did they appeal on the basis that you were saying you were falsely confessed? Did the attorney come here and interview you? No. How did you communicate with the attorney? It was only through paperwork. It was uh, done by somebody else who was working here, and he gave that paperwork to the lawyer, but then they received the news that the appeal was was denied. So the person that was working here, who was that? It's, It's another inmate. Another inmate helped you read the paperwork. Yeah. So just to be clear, you're telling me that your family paid an attorney to appeal your sentence, a murder sentence, a life sentence for murder, and he didn't come and speak to you? No. No, he never came. I was expecting them to do more, and, and I kept waiting, but nothing really ever happened. To me, it was bad enough that Andres said he'd never met his appellate lawyer. And for a case that's so serious that here is a guy that's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, going to die in prison, 
never even got to sit face to face with his attorney for his appeals, according to Andres. But what seemed to me even more incredible was that the paperwork that he was sent for the appeal had to be translated by another prisoner. In 20 years, why have you not written to pro bono attorneys? There's the Innocence Project. There's various organizations designed to help inmates with no money. If you have a compelling case of innocence, have you written to any of these people? Have you tried to get help over the years? Because I only speak Spanish and nobody here will help me out with the translation. And so, so I don't see a chance. When it comes to your case, do you think about the appeal? Do you read up law books or anything? Do you have access to any books on what you can do next? No, because all the books they have here are in English. Hmm. Just seems that the cards are stacked against him all because he doesn't speak English. And to me, this is, it's awful. Nothing has happened. I reckon that it's very hard to win a case against the state. Also, I am Mexican. You know that there are a lot of people that are locked up for crimes that they didn't commit, and they're blaming me for something that I didn't do just to have somebody in prison responsible. So I found the interview really surprising, actually. I didn't expect him to tell me that he'd confessed because of a threat to deport his entire family. What I didn't find surprising at all was his conclusion that there was racial bias in the U.S. justice system. I think a lot of people would agree with him. Thanks for talking to me. I'll be in touch. I'll write you. Thank you so much. Dead Man Talking wouldn't be possible without support from our sponsors. How do you feel when someone gives you a card or gift that isn't just bought off the shelf? Vistaprint allows you to upload a photo of your family, or in my case, I chose a funny picture of my dog, and then add it to one of their pre-designed cards. It means a lot more when someone has personalised their holiday cards, and those are the things you remember, the cards that people keep. Pick a shape like a square or rounded corners, fold it or flat, and then choose one of Vistaprint's gorgeous designs. You can put your favourite picture on most of them and even upload a great shot right from your phone. Figure out how many you need, order them up in plenty of time for the holidays. Vistaprint has hundreds of card designs to choose from, and it also has custom calendars, mugs, canvases, and other photo gifts. All custom cards and calendars are currently 50% off right now. So get merry, get jolly, get 50% off all holiday cards and calendars, plus save on other photo gifts at vistaprint.com. Just enter promo code DMTHOLIDAY. That's vistaprint.com, promo code DMTHOLIDAY, and the offer is valid until January the 31st, 2019. It seems shocking to me that Andres would confess to a crime that he didn't commit. If you're innocent, you just wouldn't do that. Or would you? Okay, give me, um, if you can just talk for a second. My name is Doug Keen. I'm a psychologist in Austin, Texas and founder of Keen Trial Consulting. I invited Doug to my house so I could find out more about false confessions under police interrogation. I wanted to find out not just why people confess to crimes that they haven't committed, but also how common is this? 
Well, it's only reasonable to think that it would be a shocking realization to imagine that any human being would say, sure, I killed someone when I had nothing to do with the crime. And it happens with shocking frequency. Because what most people do is, when they are innocent, they think, I have nothing to fear. And in fact, when they are taken to a police station and questioned by detectives, they are told, if you haven't done anything wrong, you have nothing to fear. Go ahead and tell us what you can. And what happens is their rights against self-incrimination don't seem to make sense to them because they know they didn't do anything for which they could be incriminated. So what they end up doing instead is speaking freely about matters that end up becoming more and more confused and distorted as the examination proceeds. You see all the cop shows on TV, the first thing people do is say, I'm not going to say anything until I have my attorney here. What you're saying is, if they're innocent, then they're not worried about an attorney being present. Right. What they really want more than anything is to get the heck out of there. The pressure, the emotional burden of being in an interrogation room in a police headquarters is so disturbing to most people. All they really want is to get the heck out of there. So do police actually try to obtain false confessions or do they think they have a guilty person? The majority of the false confessions cases we're talking about have to do with people acknowledging culpability for things that they simply never did. The police officer comes into the situation feeling like they've got somebody who did something bad. And that is their mindset going in. It's not discovery. It's not investigation. It's confirmation. And what we're talking about frequently in the police investigation side is what we call in social science confirmation bias. That really they're not looking for the truth so much as reassurance that what they've already concluded is correct. So are you saying that there are cases where somebody is innocent and has been accused of murder and they will actually admit to the murder if they haven't done it? Sure. One teenager admits to taking part in a gruesome murder, landing him in jail for the rest of his life. Now his lawyers are saying that his confession was... Under the right set of circumstances, could you be made to confess to a horrible crime? Why would anyone confess to a crime they did not commit? One reason may be the way police go about... 25% of convictions are from false confessions. So you're frightened, and and then promises are made. You can go home if you... Some of them are people who are mentally challenged in one way or another. Some the question is, why would someone sign a false confession, right? It is hard to understand why anybody would sign something like that, especially when it could lead to decades behind bars or death row. I wanted to know what that looked like. So a person is accused of a crime and is in the interrogation room and somehow a detective railroads them into confessing. How did that happen? It's a bizarre kind of distorted thinking that somebody says, I just need to sleep. I need some food. I need to get out of here. I want to go home. In the cases of teenagers, their major complaint, I will waive my Miranda rights. I will just talk to you ad nauseum. I just want to go home. I want to see my mom and dad. And that's what their motivation is. And they have, at times, agreed to crazy things just for the sake of getting out of the police station, as if confessing to a major crime is going to promote your freedom. It doesn't make sense, but that's the kind of distorted thinking that anxiety can produce. So this idea that somebody who wouldn't even contemplate murder would just go ahead and confess is utterly horrifying. But Doug says it happens regularly. 
In fact, a statistic from the Innocence Project states that over a quarter of the 290 wrongful convictions that were overturned by DNA evidence have involved false confessions. But if this happened to Andres Mascaro, presumably his interrogation would have been recorded. That's one of the big problems. In some jurisdictions they are, but it's done on a state-by-state basis. You have to have a recording of the actual confession, but the interviews leading up to the confession may not have ever been recorded. If the defendant or if the inmate by that point says at appeal, I was railroaded into this, I signed a confession because my family were threatened with whatever, presumably then the police would just say that didn't happen because the tapes aren't there. Yeah. Another circumstance is that the police will come in and say, we have DNA evidence. We have hair evidence. There's a case where the police told this fellow that some of his hair was literally found in his mother's hand as she lay dead after this fellow allegedly killed her. And he thought to himself, I know I wasn't there. I know I didn't do it. So I'll go ahead and confess and get this horrible ordeal of interrogation over with. They'll test the hair and they will set me free. And what ends up happening is the hair doesn't exist. It was all a ruse to get him to confess to what he had already done. Well, frequently, all of this happens before defense counsel is even engaged. So they are handed a situation that is almost untenable from the start. I told Doug about Daryl's murder and the fact that Diamantina and Andres were claiming they were innocent and were still in prison. I told him about Andres's confession and the threats to his family. It's a fairly understandable story. We have a person who is frightened. We have somebody who doesn't fully appreciate the American justice system. They know that they are vulnerable to getting deported. And the last thing they want is for any kind of problems that they've encountered to do harm to the rest of the family. It's a fairly common story. So I've put in a request for the um, court files, which presumably will include the confession. But what you're saying is it may not include a transcript of that police interview that led to the confession. In other words, I probably will not find anywhere in those documents uh, the threat to his family of deportation if that's what happened. I, I fully expect that to be the case. And if it's in Texas, it's almost certain that you don't have a recording or a transcript of the uh, interviews that led up to the confession. Which is disturbing in itself, the fact that you can interview somebody, uh, interrogate somebody, and in this case, possibly threaten to deport their family. But there's no record of this. I wanted to know what recourse Diamantina and Andres had if they really were innocent and that their confessions had been falsely obtained. So there are some missing pieces there, and one of them can be this family coercion. It can be that they are simply so confused and disoriented, they're being told in absolute terms by the police that this is what happened, not what you're saying, this is what happened, this is what happened. Generally speaking, it takes very, very compelling factual evidence to get them to revisit uh, an issued verdict. So the beauty of DNA is that it does rise to that standard. And so if it's available, it certainly would be hugely helpful. 
So the next step for me is to find out whether the evidence that was taken from the Colahaco crime scene still exists somewhere in Harris County, whether it be in a property room somewhere or in the medical examiner's office. Doug, thanks very much for chatting to me. It's fascinating stuff. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. A quick word about one of our sponsors. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, environment and the arts. I subscribe to The Economist and I bookmark the science and technology section, the Americas, because that's where I live, and Britain so I can keep up with what's happening back home. It recently published a story about how a new approach was needed to tackle violent crime in London, along with a helpful graphic that showed the numbers of murders in New York and London from 2010 to 2018. The story talked about how, although there were less than half of the number of murders in London during the first nine months of this year, other violent crimes, particularly knife crime, was up. The broad range of topics in The Economist means there's something for everyone. It gives you the lowdown on what's going on around you in the world at a time when facts matter more than ever. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So for your free print copy of The Economist, just text MAN, that's M-A-N, as in dead man talking, to 78070. Again, if you want a free copy of The Economist, text MAN to 78070. What I've learned from Doug is that, shockingly, this stuff, these railroaded confessions, these false confessions, happen far more than most people realise. I put in an open records request to the Harris County District Attorney's Office, asking if there was any property in the property room that was connected with the case. This would reveal if any items found at the crime scene were available to be retested for DNA. And this was the response I got. We do not have any responsive material or information related to your request. I wrote back asking for clarification. Are you saying the property collected at the crime scene, including clothing and a possible murder weapon, no longer exists? Again, the DA's office wrote back, We regret to inform you we do not have any responsive material or information related to your request for information in the property room for defendants Mascaro and Colahaco. And that's incredible. The most obvious way Andres and Diamantina could be exonerated if they truly are innocent seems to be lost. In the next episode of DMT Media and Audio Boom's Dead Man Talking... I'll explain how a brutal murder case in Georgia has profoundly influenced my opinion on whether Resendez was lying to me. Plus, a conversation with Diamantina's lawyer provides a very strange and unexpected twist in my investigation. Dead Man Talking was a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our researcher and production assistant is Connor Tolony. And this episode featured additional production from Heather Mitchell and our interpreter, Alvaro Cespedes. Huge thanks, as always, to Goodnight Texas, whose song The Railroad is our theme tune. And don't forget to check them out at Hi, We Are Goodnight Texas, How Are You.com. Follow developments to our story and get involved in the investigation at facebook.com 
forward slash groups forward slash deadman talking. Tweet us at deadman podcast and email us at deadman talking podcast at outlook.com. <laughs>